All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I will, of course, read the whole chapter. So Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So, yay, we are in the new section of Corinthians. (laughs) We are no longer talking about church divisions because that was what Paul spoke about for practically four chapters and I think 13 or 12 or 13 lessons that we looked at. So we finished chapter 4 last week, the first major section of the book of Corinthians. And of course this section dealt with the first complaint that came to Paul from the household of Chloe. So again, remember Corinthians is two major parts and the purpose of him writing this letter is to address the complaints that came from Chloe's household and also the questions that the Corinthian church themselves raised. So we have just finished that first complaint about divisions in the church. That was number one on Chloe's list. As we said numerous times, the Corinthian congregation had devolved into factions within the church. And these factions were centered on various apostles and teachers who served in Corinth, whether it was Paul, Apollos, Peter, or anyone else. These factions were tearing the church apart and were presenting the world with a bad view of the church. It was giving a bad witness to the world. So Paul spends all of chapter 1, verse 10, to the end of chapter 4, to dissect, to diagnose, to debate, and to discuss the issue. See how I alliterated that with D's? And by the way, if you look on your handout, the points are alliterated with P's. And it took me a long time to do that because there was one I had, it was the problem, the solution, the prognosis, and the prescription. But then I was like, wait, 
I got to be able to find another P word. So I looked and I did my, you know, my thesaurus work and found a P word. So that's why I get paid the big bucks. Anyway, so Paul spends all that time to dis- debate and discuss this issue. So we're not going to rehash it here. In summary, though, the divisions in the church reflected a carnal or fleshly or immature heart within the Corinthian church that is more concerned with worldly opinions than with God's opinion on things. So having finished this topic now, Paul, with very little fanfare, moves on to topic number two, which is sexual immorality within the church. Now the next couple of chapters here, chapters five and six, will deal with the remainder of Chloe's report. So these next two chapters will deal with points two, three, and four on Chloe's uh, report. So the first point was really detailed that Paul responded to. The next three come in shorter fashion. So chapter five here deals with an issue of sexual immorality within the church. The first half of chapter six, verses one through 11, deals with the issue of Christians suing each other in public courts, okay, in public courts, so seeking redress of their problems in the world. That's what Paul is going to address next time in verses 1 through 11. And then finally, the end of chapter 6 deals with another issue of sexual immorality, this time typically with prostitutes outside of the church. So the, the members of the church were somehow engaging in some kind of illicit sexual activity with with prostitutes outside of the church. So starting with the first here in chapter 5, we will, Lord willing, cover the rest of these issues over the next three weeks. Now, I think there will be a break if, I, if my calendar is right. So, No, no, actually, I think we'll finish it before vacation. So we'll finish, the, we'll finish Chloe's report in the first half of 1 Corinthians before vacation again, Lord willing. Now, as we head into this passage here of chapter 5, we, as we come to this this morning, it seems to kind of fit the cliche, right? Same, uh, same stuff, different day. Of course, you know, I'm substituting the word stuff for another word that begins with S. But same stuff, different day, right? New problem, same church, new problem, next, you know, next on the issue here. And as we'll see, the problem isn't only the sin being committed in the church, but it's also the Corinthians' reaction to the sin being committed in the church. Their, their apathy, their, their sort of allowing it to go, they're allowing it to fester. So the famous arrogance or puff, puff it, puff, puff it up, uppedness, puffed uppedness. See, that's why I don't like the word puffed up. The famous arrogance of the Corinthian church here comes into play. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see in verses 1 through 2 the problem, verses 3 through 5 the prescription to the problem, verses 6 through 8 the prognosis if they don't follow the prescription to the problem, and verses 9 through 13 the prohibition that Paul has to sort of reiterate the prohibition that he had originally given them about the problem. So moving on. The problem in verses 1 through 2. So Paul again transitions from divisions in the church to the next topic, which is sexual immorality in verse 1. So he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. 
So Paul here begins with the words, it is actually reported. Now you might think, well, this sounds like hearsay, right? Paul is just kind of taking what the, the Chloe's household says and is sort of running with it. This is hearsay. But in reality, there the word actually translates a word in Greek, which means completely or wholly or actually or in fact. It, it carries the notion of sort of common knowledge, generally being known. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm hearing from Chloe's household that it is common knowledge that everyone knows, right? It's like being in a small town like Sutton, right? Where the worst kept secrets are the ones that everyone seems to know, but they don't really say. They just know it happens, right? You know, a case where you mention, you say something, and then an entire room of Suttonites kind of snicker because they know what you're talking about, and there's, there's that worst kept secret in the world there. So here is common knowledge that there is sexual immorality going on in the church. Now, in case you were wondering, in case it was a question, private sin, when it becomes common knowledge, is a bad thing. Okay? When a private sin becomes common knowledge, it is a bad thing. Now, what exactly has become common knowledge is this sexual immorality. And that's what Paul says. There is sexual immorality among you within the church. If you remember from the introduction, Corinth was a city. Um, really not unlike any city you would see, major city you would see in the world today. Think of L.A., think of Vegas, think of New York, think of Chicago. Corinth is not really any different than any of these cities. A big cosmopolitan city in which a lot of weird things happen and a lot of uh, immoral things happen. So this is a city that was no stranger to sexual immorality. But so, shock, so, so the shocking thing is that there isn't that there is sexual immorality in Corinth. The shocking thing is that there is sexual immorality found, that it found its way into the church. Now the word there for sexual immorality is a word that is used often for that in, in, in the Greek there. It's porneia. You can, even as I say it, you can kind of hear the word pornography. Uh, it's used uh, 26 times in the New Testament, 14 times translated as sexual immorality, 12 times as the old, you know, famous New, uh, King James word fornication, right? Fornicating. You know, people are fornicating in the church. So here you've got this porneia going on in the church. And it's really, it's a, it's, a, it's a catch-all phrase used to describe all kinds of sexual immorality, not a specific kind. It could include adultery. It can include incest. It can include extramarital affairs. It can include premarital uh, sexual relations. It can you know, include all kinds of aberrant sexual relations. It's a kind of a catch-all word for all illicit sexual activity. Now, if that's not bad enough that there is sexual immorality in the church, what's worse is that it's being tolerated by those in Corinth. In fact, in, in fact, it was not just tolerated, but it's also a form of sexual immorality that, as Paul says here, is not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, the people in Corinth would have heard what was going on in the church of Corinth, and they themselves would have been repulsed by this. So it's one thing for a Christian to act like the world. It's quite another thing for the Christian to act in a way that even the world is repulsed. Now, as we'll see in a moment, the sin is a form of incest. 
that, is, that in Roman, uh, Greco-Roman society was actually punishable with the death penalty. The, the type of thing that was going on in the church there would have been punished by the, the governing officials of that day. Now, how bad is it that the world is actually condemning the church for its behavior? Right? That's, that's, that's what Paul is so upset about. It's not so much, it's bad enough that you've got the sin going on, but here the world is actually judging you for it. This is why living a life of thankful obedience to the law of God, not as a way to earn your salvation, is so important, right? Because Jesus himself says, let your light shine among the world so that the world will see your good deeds and will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Right? You need to be that light. You need to be that salt in this world. You need to be that, that influence, that light shining in the world, that salt that preserves and seasons the world. That's why it's so important to live a godly life. Salvation is not something that says you've got to get out of hell, you know, get out of the hell free card so now I can live any old way I want. Right? Paul discussed that in depth in Romans when we looked at Romans, Romans chapter 6. Have you now you know, so tasted the grace of God that you continue to live in sin? He says, no, you can't do that. Because one who has died to sin can no longer live in it. Now the particular sin here in question is a man has his father's wife. That's what he says here. That a man has his father's wife. So this is most likely a, a man having a sexual affair with his stepmother. Because if it was his actual mother, they probably would have just said a man is, is having sexual immorality with his mother. <laughs> so it's most likely his father's wife is a stepmother. Now you may be thinking, you know, I mean, that's bad enough, but this also violates the Old Testament provision in Leviticus 18.8, where we see there, the nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. In other words, stay away from your father's wife. Even if she's not your mother, stay away from your father's wife. And then finally, the icing on the cake in verse 2. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now again, puffed up in the New King James, uh, ESV probably says arrogant, right? Arrogant, same thing. We saw this word before, and I mentioned it before. This is... This is a word I think was like used 12 or 13 times in the New Testament, all but one of them in 1 Corinthians. So, you know, the Corinthian church was a church that was puffed up. It was arrogant. So not only were the pagans reviled by the sin that was going on in the church, but those in the church were somehow celebrating it. They were arrogant about it. They were, yes, it's going on. Of course it's going on. And we're proud of it. Now, we've spoken in past lessons on the issue of legalism and antinomianism or legalism, which is adding to God's law, the traditions of men and putting them on a level of commandment. And antinomianism is sort of rejecting anti-law, it's rejecting the law. It is a hatred of the law that sees Christians as, as not having to obey the law anymore. Of course, legalism is creating extra hoops and burdens and hurdles that you have to jump through or jump over in order to be saved, so to speak. And when Paul says in Romans 6 that we are no longer under law, but under grace, the antinomian then would take that to literally mean 
and feel like we no longer need to observe the law. So Paul will say in Romans, you are no longer under law, and the Corinthian is like, yay, no longer under law. I don't have to do anything. I am saved. I am covered. I could do whatever I want. I can sin to my heart's content. Which is why I say that the gospel is the cure for both legalism and antinomianism. So, in a way, you could say, if you don't sound like a legalist to the antinomian, or if you don't sound like an antinomian to the legalist, you're probably not preaching the gospel right. <laughs> because the gospel is going to sound one way or the other to the, to the opposite extreme. To the legalist, the gospel message sounds like you're saying no law. To the antinomian, the gospel message sounds like you're saying law. Which, you know, they're both opposite sides of the same coin. They're opposite sides of the same error. So here, Paul calls on the Corinthians to stop their boasting. This is sin. Don't boast about it. You need to mourn over it. You need to mourn over your sin. You need to remove the sinner from your midst. Right? That he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You need to get the sinner out of your midst. And we'll see that in a little, we'll expand on this in a little moment here. As we go on now to the prescription in verses 3 through 5. So Paul moves on now from the problem to the prescription. What must they do in Corinth to correct this issue? Let's look at verses 3 through 5. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here the thing that Paul suggests, maybe even commands the Corinthians here is to deliver such a one to Satan, to deliver the sinner to Satan. In a word, this is excommunication. Kick the sinner out of the church. Paul suggests this course of action even though he is absent in body but present in spirit. In other words, Paul, even though he is not there physically, even though he is hearing about this through a letter and is responding in a letter and he's not there physically, he has already, in his apostolic uh, mind has given his apostolic prescription of the situation as though he were present. He's saying, as though I were present, I have already judged this man. So when Paul says, when you are gathered together there, um, where is that in verse 4? When you are gathered together, you are to do this thing. Namely, you are to excommunicate the offender. You are to remove the offender from the church. Now in a way, Keep your finger here. We're going to flip over to Matthew 18. In a way, this reference to the gathered assembly of the church follows the process laid out in Matthew 18, which is a sort of a classic text that talks about church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. So there Jesus tells his disciples in verse 15 of Matthew 18, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But 
If he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or If two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So there you get that verse 20 that is kind of often taken a little bit out of context. It just says, hey, you've got two people together in a prayer meeting, so the Lord is there. It's like, I don't deny that the Lord is there, but really this verse is meant to show that the Lord is there Agreeing, if you've got the church agreeing on an issue, it is as if the Lord is Himself is agreeing on the issue. Because if you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. It's kind of similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 16 with the keys. He says, "Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven." So here, these verses 15 through 20 describes, and as I said. The process of church discipline. Now, in each there's three steps, and in each step, if the sinner repents, you, you're done because you've you've achieved the goal of church discipline, the repentance of the sinner, the restoration of the brother or sister who has been sinning. So, if he repents or she repents at any one of these three steps, you stop, you restore the person back to normal communion within the church. But the first step, of course, is to tell the offense to the sinning brother or sister. Okay, so you go to some, I, I, you know, you have sinned, this is your sin, you need to repent of this. Then if that doesn't work, you bring two or three witnesses and you do the same thing. And if that doesn't work, then it goes to the entire church. You bring it to the attention of the whole church. And if that doesn't work, then finally you cast them out. You treat them as a heathen or a tax collector. That is, you treat them as an unbeliever. You excommunicate them from the church. Now there in verse 20, again, you have that promise where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So again, when you have the church gathered together, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, when you are assembled together, and I am there in spirit, and you're assembled in the name of the Lord, that's the Lord is present among you, cast this person out. Now, presumably, it's not stated here explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5, but presumably, there are the other steps in the process have been taken and have, not, have failed. So he says, bring it to the attention of the church. So church discipline, of course, is never done in the heat of the moment. It is never done on the spur of a moment either. Right? Church discipline is not done behind closed doors. It is not done in secret rooms. It is not done in the darkness. It is always done with a procedure. It is always done in the light of day. Now Paul here is urging the church to take action because he himself has already weighed in. He has already pronounced his judgment on the sinner in Corinth. And now he wants the church to assemble to validate and vindicate his own judgment. So going back to 1 Corinthians 5, and as we saw earlier, that judgment in verse 5 is deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now again, this idea of delivering one to Satan is a way of saying, cast this man out of the church. Cast this man into the world. The world is the realm of Satan. Right? I think 1 John 4, I didn't look this up, but I think it's 1 John 4 or 5 says, the whole world lies in the lap of Satan. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. So the world, in a sense, is controlled. I'm putting that in scare quotes because really God is in control. But the world is under the influence of Satan. So when you cast them out of the church, you cast them out of the assembly, they are in the world, they are in the realm of Satan. It's very similar to the Old Testament. When someone is unclean, you you take the uncleanness out of the assembly until they have done whatever they need to do to become clean again, then they can come back in. Or if it's a sinner, you take them out of the assembly, and if it's a death penalty, you stone them to death outside of the assembly. You are removing the evil influence from the church. And again, the purpose of this disciplinary, act, disciplinary action really is twofold. One, it's for the restoration of the sinner, but two, it's for the purity of the church. You have to maintain the purity of the church. But here Paul says the purpose of this disciplinary action here is the destruction of the flesh. Deliver this one to Satan that his spirit may be saved for the destruction of the flesh. Now again, we've seen that word flesh before. It's one of Paul's favorite words. We saw it all over uh, Romans. We see it here again in 1 Corinthians, that word sarks. It essentially can refer to our physical bodies, the flesh, or it can also refer to the unredeemed part of our nature, the sin nature, the part that is still sort of Satan's beachhead for sin. Right? The flesh is unredeemed. Our spirits have been made new in Christ. Our flesh awaits redemption on the last day when Christ comes and we are given glorified bodies. So until that day, our flesh is something we have to battle. Right? Paul in Romans 7, the battle between the spirit and the flesh where you know, the spirit knows what ought to be done and wants to do it, but the flesh often doesn't allow the spirit. So Paul says, I know what needs to be done, but I don't do it. And I know what I don't want to do, but that's what I do. That's that battle within me between the flesh and the spirit. And here Paul says, deliver this one so that fallen part of our nature can be destroyed to the destruction of the fallen part of our nature. Now again, the, phys- the purpose of church discipline is always restorative. It is always restorative. You want to gain your brother back. So it is more likely here flesh is unredeemed sin nature and you remove the sinning brother or sister for the purpose of destroying their sinful nature so that they will repent and then be restored eventually, that is the hope, back into the church. So now we move on to verses 6-8 through for the prognosis. So what happens if you allow unrepentant sin to go unchecked within the church? That's what Paul addresses in verses 6 through 8. First, look at verse 6. Your glorying, or in other translations, your boasting, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So, again, addressing their boasting, their glorying, Paul says, Your boasting, your glorying in this sin is not good. <laughs> Why are you doing that? You've got a sinner in your midst. Why are you boasting about it? Why are you proud about it? That's 
worse. <laughs> Stop doing that. Now, there's a question that can be asked. Why were the Corinthians boasting? Because Paul seems way more concerned about their boasting than the actual sin. I mean, he's concerned about the sin committed, but he's really concerned the fact that the church is not doing anything about it. You're letting this fester. It's like you've got a tumor and you're boasting the fact that you've got a tumor in your body. Yay for my tumor. It's, it's growing and it's, and it's eating out the rest of my organs and I'm about to die in a few short months. So yay, I'm boasting about my tumor. No, that's gross, right? You wouldn't do that, right? No one would do that. It's kind of gross. So they're, they're boasting over this. And it's even more shocking because, again, the pagans in the world were reviled by this. This is What you're doing in the church is something that is not even named among the pagans. There's a couple theories that have been put forth. One I read in a commentary says the possibility is that this offender was probably a wealthy, well-known person, a contributor to the church, and they didn't want to offend that person. I mean, you've seen that in churches before, too, right? You know, someone who gives a lot to the church and... You know, you don't want that person to leave with their deep pockets, so you kind of let things slide and you let things slide and, and so on and so forth. I like the answer that most likely it was a faulty understanding of grace and being freed from the law and also sort of a carryover of the fact that the Corinthians were sort of so steeped, so, uh, you know, just raised in this kind of Greco-Roman philosophical mindset. The, the philosophical mindset of the Romans and the Greeks was that the flesh, the body, is evil. The spirit is good. So whatever happens with the body doesn't matter. It's the spirit that's important. So if you sin with your body, no big deal. You know, you'll see that again later in chapter 6 where he says, you know, food for the body and the body for food. You know, that, that's like a little phrase, a little catchphrase. The Corinthians were sort of, who cares if I eat myself or if I, or if I have sex with a, with a prostitute? It's with the body. That's, not, that's, the, that's the evil part of me. So I think that's where you're getting this. So this person is having this, this illicit affair with his father's wife, and the Corinthian mindset is, well, it's with the body. It doesn't matter. You know, that's their philosophical mindset. Whichever view you like, like I said, I like view two, needless to say, it's bad to glory in the sin. Don't boast in the sin. That's bad. Bad Corinthians. Don't do that. And Paul illustrates how bad it is by going to this image of the leaven and the lump of dough. So just as leaven, when you put it into a lump of dough, spreads throughout the lump, sin can spread throughout a church. So if you are given, given a group of recovering sinners... What's likely to happen if sin is allowed to exist within the church? We're all recovering sinners to one degree or another, depending on what your besetting sins or sins are. You know, if you have a group of recovering sinners and you're allowed sin to, re, to grow in the church, it's just going to fester. It's going to grow and it's going to spread to the entire church. Would you, would you encourage a recovering alcoholic to go visit a bar? No, right? <laughs> You don't want to get them even near the source of their temptation. Sin is, is a destructive cancer and cannot be allowed to linger within the church. And even Jesus, when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Yeah, pop it out of your head, right? If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Sin requires drastic 
measure sometimes. So then continuing this leaven illustration, Paul brings it now into a sort of a salvific or salvation type of sense here in verses 7 through 8. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So as Paul continues this leaven image, he kind of incorporates a Passover image into it as well. Now, the only way to keep the lump free from leaven is to purge out the old leaven. Right? You don't want to get the leaven anywhere near the lump of dough. You've got to keep it away. You've got to purge it out. So when the old leaven is removed, you now have a new lump. Okay, Now we're no longer talking about leaven and dough. Right? That's what Paul is doing here. He's now talking about sin and the new creation. When you remove sin from somebody, you have a new creation. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new is now here. And that's why Paul says here, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. It is because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that we are new lumps. Right? How about that for, for a slogan? <laughs> We're the new lumps. <laughs> Not exactly flattering, but... Oop. Hey, this is well made. It didn't, it didn't spill over. That's good. <laughs> we are the new lumps in Christ. Uh, the leaven has been removed. And also here, this referring to the Passover is meant to recall, well, let me ask you this. What happened during the Feast of Passover when they celebrated the Passover? What were the Jews required to do? Given the imagery we've seen so far. Right, but okay. Yeah, they were to eat unleavened bread. They were to remove all leaven from their households for the Feast of Passover. They were only to eat unleavened bread. If anything was leavened, it was, I think you were cut off. I, I have to look back at the text. They were, during the Passover celebration, they were to remove all leaven from their households and only eat unleavened bread. And then right after the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread in which they would celebrate that for seven days. So here Paul referencing that is meant to call to mind, at least to his mind, and maybe the Jews who were there, that the ancient Jews were to remove all leaven from their homes and eat unleavened bread only. So thus here Paul brings it to a close uh, that we are to continue to keep the feast. Keep the feast of Passover. How? By removing the leaven of sin, the sin of malice and wickedness, from the church and eating the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now finally here, Paul in the final verses addresses the prohibition in verses 9-13 through 13, because apparently there was a misunderstanding with what Paul originally wrote to them. So now the original prohibition we see in verse 9 here where he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not only to Sorry, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So that's the prohibition. Now the fact that Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle indicates two things. So what Paul is saying here is something he already told them. Right? I wrote to you previously, do not associate with immoral, sexually immoral people. But it also kind of proves the point I've been making 
at least from the very beginning of Corinthians, that Paul wrote more letters to this church than what we have preserved in the Bible. Okay, I, I think an argument can be made that he wrote at least four letters to the church. Who knows? Maybe even more. We have two of them preserved, two are not. Which makes me wonder, it's like, what did he write in the other two? <laughs> I think one of them, he was particularly harsh, right? He called it a tearful letter. Um, it brought them great sorrow. And maybe the other one just wasn't, maybe it included an ancient Greek you know, shopping list or something. It wasn't necessary to save in Scripture. But anyway, what Paul wrote to them was a prohibition to avoid sexually immoral people. Now, that's what, the, that's what Paul says. Now, what the church heard, right? You get this, the classic, you know, what was said and what was heard, okay? It's almost like the ancient game of telephone. So the church misunderstood Paul. They thought he meant the sexually immoral people of the world. Avoid the people out there who are sexually immoral. That's what he says in verse 10. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So the way the Corinthians understood Paul was apparently that they should separate themselves from the world entirely. That they should just remove themselves out of the world, have no associations with those in the world. And there are Christian communities and churches that kind of advocate this to some extent, right? You know, it's like, don't do anything worldly, right? Don't have anything to do with the world at all. Don't associate with unbelievers. Don't listen to the world's music. Don't watch their movies. Don't read their books. All that stuff. Now, Paul says to them, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I did not mean do not associate with the wicked or the sexually immoral of the world because the church is in the world, not of the world, right? And we've heard that before, right? The church is in the world, not of the world. That's what Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are in the world. Preserve them while they're in the world. In fact, the church cannot accomplish its mission if it doesn't go out into the world. Right? What's the, what's the first few words of the Great Commission? Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples, and so on and so forth. You cannot accomplish the church's mission if you sort of adopt a bunker mentality and you hunker down in your church and just deal with other Christians and don't get out and associate with unbelievers. So then Paul clarifies this point in verse 11. But now I have written to you, so now he's saying I'm writing to you now, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So Paul's prohibition here is clarified not to associate with one who professes the name of Christ, who professes to be a Christian if they are living in unrepentant sin. If a Christian refuses to listen to the loving rebuke and admonition of another Christian, but continues to live a life totally inconsistent with his or her profession, the loving thing to do is not to tolerate that. Is to not tolerate that, but discipline them. You would not tolerate that. You would not tolerate misbehavior in your children. Why? Because you love your children. You want them to grow and be 
good people. So when they misbehave, you discipline them because you love them. And if you love a brother or sister in Christ, you don't allow them to live in unrepentant sin. You don't tolerate that. You don't look past it. You have to address it. And sometimes that might mean you lose a friend. But you know, hopefully you will gain a brother or sister. So now in verses 12 through 13, Paul says he is not concerned with judging the world. It's not my prerogative to judge the world, Paul says. That's God's, that's God's domain. God will judge the world in verses 12 through 13. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Then finally, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, there are a couple of things to say here. First, that there is a line of demarcation between the world and the church. Okay? Within the church, discipline is exercised on members in the church, which is why membership in a church is important because you are saying, I am aligning myself with this body of believers, I am submitting to the leadership of that church and if need be, the discipline of that church. So church discipline is exercised on members of the church, which is governed biblically by a body of elders who have been called to that task. In the world, the church does not have that kind of jurisdiction in the world. In the world, the state judges temporal issues, right? The state has been given the power of the sword, according to Romans 13, to exercise justice. And then God judges the eternal issues, right? The state judges the temporal issues. God judges the eternal spiritual issues. Second thing to say on this is that church discipline is, as one book of church order describes it, is ministerial and declarative. Ministerial and declarative. That is, it is according to the word of God and for the good of the church and her members, Now, of course, it doesn't mean that the church can't speak to the ills and sins of the world, but its authority only carries within the church, right? The authority of the church carries within the church. I cannot go out there and excommunicate a non-member of this church for their sin. Now, as a Christian, I can go to that person and speak to them about their sin and humbly you know, request that they repent of that sin and accept Christ as Savior and then join themselves to a church. But I cannot exercise church discipline on a random person outside of the church. But again, the church can speak to the ills of the world, but again, its authority carries within the church. And again, because Paul is concerned with church purity and holiness, he then commands the Corinthians to put away from yourselves the evil person. And this cites many uh, Old Testament passages. Um, just looking here, Deuteronomy 13.5, Deuteronomy 17.7 and 12, Deuteronomy 19.19, 19, Deuteronomy 21.21, Deuteronomy 22.21, and 24, Deuteronomy 24, 20, uh, 24.7. So this, you know, put away the evil person from among you is something that is repeated throughout uh, the Old Testament passages there so there you have it as promised chapter five signed sealed and delivered (laughs) it's yours to continue the song Um, church discipline right it is meant to keep the church holy and pure it is meant to 
disciplined, unrepentant sinners in the church for the purpose of restoring them to communion. It is always for the purpose of restoring them to communion. You always should want, in a disciplinary action, to do so for the good of that person so that they will repent of their sin. And if need be, you have to sometimes take drastic action to do so. It's not something we should rush to do. It is something that we should, of course, do, but in all due uh, order and uh, discipline. So I'll stop there. Next time, Lord willing, the 6th, we will look at 1 Corinthians 6, the first 11 verses.